90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. I'm almost back to normal, although the rest of the family is now getting sick, but you know, whatever. <laughs> you know, my coworkers have been dropping like flies and Ugh. it's it's just a matter of time. I'm not looking forward to it. Yeah, you better you better milk that working at home as much as you can. We actually got an email from the university that said, if you are sick, do not come to work. <laughs> I wish more places would do that. There are several people that have showed up in meetings yeah. that have been it's just like no, it's we we can Skype you and we can do something. Please, please don't get me sick. Exactly. It's ridiculous. I came one day when I was sick and you know, I was here for 2 seconds and I just had to run in my office and get something and I felt bad about it. Like I'll never do that again. Even though I was only here 2 seconds, I felt pretty terrible. So, yeah, um it was super nice to see that, you know, stuff can wait so you don't kill everybody. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, we've had some excitement here this week. We had a water pipe break in the building, and so working oh. from home has been much more of an option this week. Nice. Awesome. <laughs> well, as long as it's in the building and not your house. So knock on some it's, wood. <laughs> yeah, it's true, and it's been relatively cool here, so I'm I'm not complaining about getting to stay at home and uh, work from here, you know, have the have the dog curl up in my lap, that kind of thing. Yeah, uh, it's always nice to have your service animal there with you. Exactly. And, you know, <laughs> I've been uh, in the evenings watching some of the Olympic sports, which is always fun. A lot of physics in the Winter Olympics. I don't know how we can work that into a show, but I feel like it needs to be. I feel like it needs to be, too. That's a, that's a good call. Uh-huh. I get really mad because it's like, while I enjoy ice skating, I really want to see the skiing, and I feel like they dump everything to put ice skating on and you know there's a lot more physics in ice skating i mean well, a lot more demonstrable physics in ice skating but <laughs> it's true and my wife has decided that i only enjoy the boring sports uh, of what? because <laughs> well so not winter olympics specific but when it comes to sports ball i enjoy baseball and when it comes to things that are on the in the winter olympics i like curling curling of course curling is super exciting <laughs> Lindy's just not watching it drunk enough, I guess. So <laughs> I, I have resisted putting in Fun Paper Fridays in the past because I think we should do it as a show. There are actually two research groups that have been arguing in the literature for the better part of a decade now about the physics that happen underneath a piece of uh, oh, underneath a curling stone that's at the beautiful. interface between the curling and the ice. That's beautiful. <laughs> and it's actually, yeah. there's a lot of really cool things where there are two ways that this lubrication and sliding mechanism could work, and we don't know which one it is, and we're using some absurdly expensive technology to try to figure it out, because, once again, it has applications in things other than curling. Oh, yeah, and it's like a reverse glacier, if you think about it. Oh, that is, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, before this show devolves into that... Uh, John's got to go make some notes. Well, we'll be back, folks. <laughs> right. So we got a, an email from listener Mitch in Homer, Alaska, and he had told us some about the earthquake, but he also sent a link and said, I wonder if you can build one of these. And it was a link to a video 
about the augmented sandbox, which <laughs> we each had at our respective institutions. That is right. Well, yes, Mitch. Yes, we can. Um, <laughs> our augmented sandbox was fantastic because I actually had a computer science uh, undergraduate student approach me and say, hey, if you pay me just this, you know, if you just pay me materials, I'll build this for you. And I was like, well, you know, we can actually pay you as well. And he was fantastic and built our augmented sandbox that we play in constantly. Yes, and somebody at Penn State had built one uh, for the museum. And last I knew, the the physics core that drives it was relatively simple, and they were working on adapting it to be a glacier physics core. So you could also build glaciers and make them flow and that kind of thing. Yeah, I've heard a lot about that. Ours had lava, which was super fun. That was my favorite because you'd have these kids playing it and you're like, cool, well, let me build this like mountain lake. And then I'd hit this button on the side and be like, it's a volcano. (laughs) (laughs) And everyone would freak out and be like, oh. (laughs) So, yeah, this augmented sandbox is fantastic. Like, Do you have a little Tommy Lee Jones action figure blocking (laughs) the flows of lava with concrete barriers? That's right, obviously. (laughs) What else do you block lava with? Um, it's, it's so wonderful to watch adults devolve into eight-year-olds again instantly when you turn on this augmented reality sandbox. Well, and a lot of them, at least ours had the, uh, kinetic sand, I think is the trade name for it. Oh, no, no, that's not Uh, good. Regular sand is the best way to go. Oh, so I was actually fascinated before the projector even got hooked up with the kinetic sand (laughs) so much so that I, you know, went to the store and bought some. (laughs) Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's pretty fun stuff, actually. I, w- I would agree. But it would get, stuff would get stuck in it down in our lab. So we just keep regular sandbox sand. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think we could actually sort of transition this to what I wanted to talk about today. Uh-hoo. Because I wanted to talk about geologic cross sections. And I think that could actually be an interesting uh, addition to something like the kinetic sandbox. You'd have to have a couple more projectors and it would be complicated, but it would be really cool. Actually. Because trying to figure out what's under your feet is hard. It is hard. And that just, well, I'm going to have to, we're going to have to stop the show so I can make some notes because kinetic <laughs> sand would absolutely make it easily available to do geologic cross sections. But we'll get to that because first we probably need to talk about what we mean by cross sections. And this is sort of where. You know, John took the easy route, and he got a meteorology and geophysics degree, and I took the hard route, which was meteorology and geology. <laughs> well, so, <laughs> as, as we'll see, when we're talking about trying to infer what's underneath your feet, geologists do pretty good for, like, the top, you know, well, the lowest point in your survey area to the highest point in your survey area, inferring <laughs> what used to be there. <laughs> Oh, here's where we're going to get snarky. And then geophysicists provide this answer much deeper, but they're not any unique solutions. So, you know, the answer's whatever you want it to be, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, seismic cross-sections, you kind of back up and turn your head, and somebody comes into your office and asks about this new piece of uh, art that you have. Yeah, that's exactly true. (laughs) Uh, so hopefully you can tell by our banter, cross-sections are kind of, um, they really are. They're mostly built on data, hopefully, and then the rest of them are built on your prior knowledge of geology and your artistic ability. Exactly. <laughs> and it, it's something that 
I, I think a lot of people have problems with because spatial reasoning is hard, especially when you're dealing with spatial reasoning of you're, you're working in a different reference frame of where the rocks used to be. Right, exactly. And so, <laughs> right. <laughs> and that's all about palinspastic, you know, recreation, but we'll get to those words. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, a cross-section of anything, it's, this is where... Um, my dear friend, Devin Denny, who we're going to have on the show to talk about this, he does this great YouTube channel called Geology Kitchen. And so you can just look this up on YouTube. And it's really great to make food allusions to geology. And a cross-section is the easiest thing. So say you've got a layer cake and you cut it in half and you're looking at it from the side. That's a cross-section of the cake. And that's what we try to do as geologists because frequently you want to know what's going on under your feet right or i mean you can make cross sections of stuff you can see um because that's where the that's where the action is it's true and geology is not the only place we do this we also make cross sections of temperature moisture and other variables in the atmosphere as well so you can cut across a cold front and see the structure of it uh exactly right i mean that's the first uh that was actually my first cross sections was when i worked at the severe storms lab and we used um, the radar software, and you could make cross-sections through storms. And so you want to do this because you want to know where in the storm your hail is at, you know, where you've got all your vertically integrated liquids, all this stuff. Um, and so those were actually my first cross-sections was in meteorology. I think my first cross-section was probably taking a bunch of radiosond weather balloon data ah. and mm -hmm. going across a front. And it's actually strikingly similar to uh, a cold front moving is strikingly similar to a turbidity current. Yes, it's the same thing. It's just a different time scale of physics. Yeah. Right. So mm -hmm. we make these cross sections all the time. But in geology, generally the thing that you start with when you're making your cross section is your plain old geologic map. Right, exactly. So you've got this map, which is in what we call map view or plan view you know you're looking down on the rocks so like you're up in a balloon looking down and that's what a geologic map is it's like if we're going to talk about say bedrock maps which is what we'll talk about right now and um what are the rocks that are there so you take away all the river alluvium and dirt and everything what would those rocks be that are right there and the point is you want to start to make a cross section so you see the rocks on top but then, and this is really at the base of most geologic maps, somewhere on that geologic map, the geologist has made a cross-section because that tells you tectonically what has happened in the area. You know, do you have folds? Do you have faults? How are they oriented? Because that's kind of hard to tell on a map sometimes. Um, yeah, so that's where you want to start is with that thing. And basically, that geologic map is made up of a lot of information, but most importantly, contacts, right? Yeah, so contacts are where rock formation A meets rock formation B. And we draw it as a line, and we don't walk the whole thing. In fact, generally, we start out with aerial photos when we're doing this. And yes. then kind of circle some areas of, okay, I'm not sure what exactly what's happening here. We should go walk over there. Right. Um, so if you're a professional geologist, that's how you do it. If you're a student in my class, don't you dare start with an aerial photo. We're going to walk it all first. <laughs> <laughs> So I think cross-sections actually make the maps easier to read for beginners because if you think about a dome or anticlines or synclines or some of these other structures, 
the way that they're manifest on a plan view, which really what you're drawing is a cross section. It's just a cross section horizontally. In the, in the horizontal, yeah. Um, <laughs> these vertical structures and dipping structures have weird representations in this horizontal cross section of a map. Right. And so the base map of most geologic maps is a topographic map. Okay. And so we kind of have to start there to set the stage for what you just said. Because so a dome, it's a feature that. It's just what it says. It's a dome, right? <laughs> I it's hard. It's hard to like, self-definition. Yeah, uh, it's it's really hard to come up with another huh, another name for a dome. Um, technically, it's like a circular feature where the oldest beds are in the middle, youngest beds. Yeah. So on top. Im- imagine you had some salt or something, uh, a big salt deposit from an ancient sea. The salt is less dense than the surrounding rocks, so over geologic time, it's going to flow and push upwards, bulging all the rock above it up in this dome-like structure. Right. And so if you're looking at that in a horizontal cross-section, which is what I would call maps from now on. Um, <laughs> so if you're looking <laughs> at it from above and you're just going to map the salt, it just winds up being a circle. And that circle will probably correspond to the topographic high on the map, right? So it might be bubbled up like that. doesn't always have to happen um, if, that's, if you have a contour map as your base map. Um, and so it's just a circle. How do you conceptualize what that dome actually looks like? Right. And I actually, when I'm making a map, but I am not, you know, I made maps in, in school, but it's not what I do on a daily basis. I don't look at geologic maps uh, and I certainly don't make them on a daily basis, (laughs) but I always found it easier to completely ignore the topography when I was collecting my data because I would bias where I would go look at things. (laughs) Um, so as someone that looks at geologic maps daily and makes them more than occasionally, (laughs) Uh, I understand where you're going from there, and that's to try to make it objective, but that's not always the best approach. It's probably the best first approach. I'll say that. But there are lots of rules about how geologic contacts will follow topography. And so you shouldn't make that assumption, but it's also a good guide for if you're trying to do those spot checks like you were talking about earlier. Okay, I will say, yeah, you know, you know that if you're going in a valley, you're going to get kinking around it. Yes. Uh, so that's something, yeah, I that is a physical basis. Uh, yes. And I'm, I don't feel too bad about doing that. What I would hesitate on is things like, oh, well, there is this topographic high here. I think I know how I'm going to interpret that. Yeah. And I... Because it's deceiving. <laughs> so this is our very first... Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing maniacally because, yes, I agree with you here, because this is one thing I do to trick the students right away so they don't make this mistake, which is where you're going. You know, just because you have a hill doesn't mean you have a dome or an anticline, right? Just because it's a mound doesn't mean that the rocks underneath it are also curved to match that topography. And so I have sort of, it's not elaborate, but I have a setup where that's the first and obvious interpretation and they, everyone always gets it wrong. So hopefully they never make that mistake again. 
Yes. And (laughs) as I laugh maniacally, because I think it's hilarious every time, because everyone's like, why did I get this wrong? And I'm like, just because it's a hill doesn't mean your rocks, you know, curve around in the shape of a hill. Like, that's ridiculous, right? Because sometimes topography has nothing to do with, well, it has to do with the underlying geology, but not necessarily the underlying structure. Right. You know, you could have a river that snaked its way across a bunch of dipping beds. Mm-hmm. that created some pretty complicated-looking topography, but it's really just dipping beds. Right. Yep, exactly. You, you can start to imagine, and you can do this in the car, not in Kansas or Oklahoma, but where it's not flat, um, <laughs> <laughs> where if your road is slightly going down or up and all the rocks are flat line, it looks like the rocks are tilting, right? Because you're kind of traveling down or up through the section. And you're like, oh, those rocks are slightly tilting. No, no, man, the road's just going down or up, you know? It's very easy to trick yourself into that. And the same thing when you're mapping. So you're absolutely right about that. Yeah, so that's, I guess that's more where I was getting at, is just the the topography can be deceiving. And sometimes the topography is just quaternary alluvium stuff, you know, glacial deposits or something. It has absolutely nothing to do with what's actually below you. (laughs) Oh, right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where, that's where I made my caveat at the beginning. Let's talk about basement maps, which take away all the loose sediment and dirt. And you're just talking about actual rock. I mean, you could say bedrock, I guess, if you want to. Um, in my mind, bedrock is always crystalline rock, but I guess that's not always true. So we're going to take away all the dirt and all the river deposits that aren't actually rocks yet. They're just loose stuff. And that's where that's a good place to start. Right. So, I mean, that's why, you know, when you go to field camp, you come out to Colorado where the wind has stripped everything that is not rock (laughs) away. Exactly. And it's too dry and hot for actual plants to live because they just get in the way of the rocks. Um, I don't see how you did anything in Pennsylvania if there wasn't a road cut. That's basically all we did. I remember the first map that we made. (laughs) It was just a grad school sort of an orientation exercise. Get to know your colleagues was, okay, we're going to put you in teams and you're going to go make a map of this area. There were two road cuts, and then I remember there was a a little place where they said, okay, we're going to go take a strike and dip measurement, which is the next thing on our hit list here. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're going to go take this measurement, and I was expecting, you know, normally somewhere where you can put your notebook and, you know, get a good orientation from your compass. It was (laughs) a bed of shale sticking out of the ground about an inch and a half (laughs) that you had to lay on your belly and eyeball the dip. (laughs) (laughs) see now this is what happened when i took my class to hot springs arkansas (laughs) and they were like where are the rocks (laughs) yeah and i mean hot spring arkansas is right in the middle of the washita fold and thrust belt it is structurally majorly complex it is a premier fold and thrust belt i mean the structures are just like salivatingly beautiful but you can't see any of them because there's so much no. grass and trees. Like my favorite thing is to get the get the aerial photo out because just like you said earlier, John, that's one of the ways you first start to map. And it's like there's nothing. All of the aerial photos are either green or brown, depending on what season they were taken in. <laughs> right. And if you see a change in plant type, that's probably a contact. Which exactly is unfortunately exactly. one of the better ways to map sometimes. It's so true. So true. But we digress. Okay, so <laughs> you definitely want to be out somewhere like that because it's easy to see the rocks. But, you know, most areas have these basement geologic maps, right, or bedrock geologic maps. And in order to 
start to make that transition from if you're looking down and what it is to if you take a slice through it, what it is. That's exactly what you have to do, is you have to pick where you're going to take this slice. Um, and you've got to take into account all these strike and dip things. <laughs> um, which, strike and dip, it's how we talk about the orientation of the rocks, right? So if you have a rock that's tilted, say 45 degrees, okay? Rocks are originally flat yep. line, sedimentary rocks. You tilt them up 45 degrees. If you were to take a piece of paper or a horizontal plane, if you will, and intersect that horizontal plane with that rock, it makes a line. That line is the line of strike. Yeah, and so you said 45 degrees angle, so that would be the dip, is it's 45 degrees from the horizontal. Um, the way I like to explain it is if you pour some water out of your Nalgene, the water runs down the dip direction and 90 degrees to the dip direction is strike. Exactly right. Um, it, this is how we do it in America, but <laughs> lots of other places do it differently. Um, in Europe, you'll often see something called dip dip, which you take your compass and you look at the azimuth and which direction is that water flowing and then what is the angle that that water is flowing from the horizontal is something you would record. So here we do strike and dip. There they do dip, dip. Well, it and all gives you orientation of the rock. It gives you orientation, but it gets very confusing because when we're taking strike and dip, okay, well, if your rock is dipping, let's say the line of strike is north to south uh, and it's dipping at 45 degrees, is that north strike or a south strike well yeah. it depends on which side of that line it's dipping and yeah. then you use the right hand rule but it depends on which right hand rule you use mm -hmm, because i use the british right hand rule which is basically like using your left hand yes <laughs> there are <laughs> lots of ridiculous conventions and how my class which i've yelled at them for the past three weeks and they will not make this mistake how you get over that is if you're going to record a strike so it's a line and if you're looking at a compass, there's a north arrow and a south arrow, right? But which direction are they dipping? If it's striking north-south, it could be dipping to the east or to the west. So what do you do is you write down east or west. <laughs> and then there's That's a never good practice, that for sure. Yes. There's never that ambiguity, right? So you're like, oh man, did I read the wrong arrow? Did I read the south arrow? And then you're stuck with this number and you don't know which way they're dipping, which is the whole crux of making a cross section. And you're hosed. Or when you're out there, it doesn't matter which arrow you read. I mean, you should read the north arrow just for good practice. But, right. you know, it doesn't matter because you've actually written down it's dipping 28 degrees to the east. Well, now and I you know. should also sketch it on your map in real time to make sure you're not just doing something totally boneheaded when you're taking your measurements. Uh, you should. Um, and actually, we have a, a text that we use that I super love. Like, it's really great. It's Angela Coe's Geologic Field Techniques book. And the only thing I hate about it is instead of actually sketching strike and dip symbols in real time, she says to put a dot and then write your strike and dip in your book. Yeah, I don't don't like that. No, uh. no, that's bad. <laughs> so you should write your strike and dip on your map and you should also write your strike and dip on the book. You know, I put a dot and number it and write a strike and dip symbol. So then as you're mapping, you can, you know, see what your structures look like in real time, just like you said. Right. 
And this is also why, well, you know, there's, you can use quadrants or you can use actual azimuth for reporting strike. We've argued about that before. <laughs> I think using quadrants is just absurd. Um, there are so many people that do, and it's so funny to me because we have like five quadrant compasses, and the kids just die when they get them. They get so upset. Um, I think quadrants are massively intuitive. Intuitive, sure, but we're, we live in an age where this is all going to end up in a computer. Yeah, okay, quantitatively, they're dumb. <laughs> and, I mean, yeah, you can convert them, and it's not hard, but... It's also one of those things where I think we should be reporting dip angle and dip direction because that's unambiguous. Oh, well, right. And so I make them do that as well. So, yes, I agree. Anyway. so We digress. You're out there and you take all these strike and dips. And when we say you take all these strike and dips, I would say to map an area that is, you know, mile and a half by mile and a half, you're probably going to take a few hundred. Everyone, I want you to listen to that again. <laughs> Everyone from my class that heard that. <laughs> if you're going to map a section, which is just a mile by a mile, right? Yes. Yes, that is exactly right. You should probably have at least 100. I mean, it, if, it depends it, on how many contacts you have and how complex your structure is. Right. If it's just a bunch of shallowly dipping beds, okay, yeah, you're probably going to have 10. But... When you've got a lot of complex folding going on, and then it was offset by faulting, which always happens. And, yes, yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, I remember one little section of a map where there were what turned out to be overturned folds, so folds mm-hmm. that went over the top. Uh, so all mm-hmm. your dips were quite funky to interpret. Uh, I think in that one little part of that section, I probably had 75 or more. And that is exactly right. And we'll go to an area where it's probably a quarter mile by quarter mile. And I expect students to really define the structure because it's those little things like that you can miss. You know, if you're not constantly taking these strike and dips, you'll miss the fact that you have overturned beds or something like that. And so I expect maybe 50 in this area and I invariably get five from nearly the entire class. Well, and also not to mention when you try to plot these things on a stereo net and do some actual statistics with what's going on in the area, five is meaningless. Yes, it really is. And this is where I will say, you know, if you're just mapping, you can get to use a Brunt compass. You get pretty fast at it. Like I feel really quick with just my regular Brunt compass, Um, but not to make a plug, but no, it's actually, I'm totally making a plug. Um, we had Lauren and Dave Hirschap on a while back. Um, you can go back and listen to that show. And they created sort of a new compass, the Brunton Axis, um, that makes taking those strike and dips super fast. And the reason that you need to do that super fast is just always, John said, if you've got complex structure, you want to take a ton of them. And it's in a small area, and you want to get as much detail as possible. So something like that actually you know, can make your job move along pretty quickly. So while that sounds like a lot, it's often needed for some of this complex structure. Definitely. So you'll look at your map, you'll see where you have strike and dip. You want to make your cross section, I would say in general, try to make it perpendicular to most of the structure. Yes, you do. Because if you think about structures that are dipping and you start to make cuts in that structure to look at a cross section not perpendicular to them 
you start to get kind of weird angles. That structure starts to look either more exaggerated or less exaggerated than it actually is, depending on where you make that cross. So perpendicular is the way to go, but that's not always going to be the case. And you're going to have to do some math, unfortunately, or fortunately, if you like math. Um, yeah, I mean, this is it, it's literally the map projection problem, but turned on its side. Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah. So there's a lot of a lot of finagling that has to go into a cross-section. Um, and if, <laughs> if students were, I don't know, not smarter about this, but this is the work smarter, not harder concept. If you take a whole lot of strike and dips in the field, you know, you get away from this problem. You don't have to make a lot of weird projections because if you've got a, a cross-section line and you've got enough strike and dips, there's going to be enough, you know, that fall across that line and it makes it a lot easier and here's where i would say you know if you're a geologist you probably draw the line on the map and you pick the nearest strike and dip that's roughly in line with what you're trying to look at and you project that over and then you just you draw it and go on if you're Mm -hmm. a geophysicist you have a computer grid it up and do the math Well, I actually hand out uh, a set of nomograms, so that you, you got to do the math anyway in my class. <laughs> oh, so th- that is nomogram, you know, so we're talking then the, the geologist, the field paper computer. That's right. <laughs> That's right. The actual hand computer. Yes. That right. Is what I'm so you're, about. <laughs> you're at this angle relative to the cross, or your dip is at this angle relative to your line of cross section, so then this tells you how that projects. Right, and so you come up with this thing called a parent dip. Um, and I love it because when was the last time you had to use a protractor in school, right? And so you have to use a protractor in my field class and in field camp constantly, and I love it so much because I love using protractors. I don't know. And you just, you're like, here's this thing. I haven't used it since, you know, tr- gosh, when do you use it? Just geometry class? And so then you've got to get this protractor back out again because you use it literally every day that you're mapping. And if yours is not of the clear variety where you can see your map through it, that changes after your first day in the field. Oh, it sure does. I actually just wound up passing them, passing a bunch of them out. I wound up buying a bunch of tiny clear ones, and they're actually integrated on a ruler. They're just beautiful little protractors. Yeah. Shout out to Forestry Supplies. Amen. For, <laughs> for having all this stuff. Yes. That's right. If you'd like to sponsor us, Forestry Supplies, I certainly spend enough money there. <laughs> <laughs> so you've drawn your line on your map. You project these strike and dips into a parent dip if it is so relevant. And now, <laughs> if you're doing this by hand, you take a piece of paper and you lay it along your line, your cross-section line on the map, and you mark on the piece of paper where all the contacts are and where all your strike and dip measurements are, and then that paper now becomes your own little custom cross-section ruler, and you use it to start constructing your cross-section. Right, exactly. Um, it's something, and this is hard to, it's a hard concept to get across, because it's something you don't have to understand how to do it. This is the recipe for doing it. Okay, so if you're not spatially inclined you might struggle more in geology but you know whatever everyone can overcome it but if you you don't have a good 3d view of things yet you don't have to to actually make a cross-section because there is 
this recipe and that's how it starts. So you just have to follow the recipe and you will magically come out with a cross section. <laughs> well, you'll magically come out with a cross section below ground. Yes. <laughs> sort of. Um, sort of, yeah. <laughs> uh, this is where, and I don't know, I don't remember if this is standard practice or not. Is it standard practice that you put the topography on the cross section? Uh, it depends. It depends on the point of your cross section. Um, you know, if you're only interested in the subsurface, you don't generally. Uh, but when you do the topography on your cross section, I feel like it is a lot easier. Yeah, so I always like to add topography as well. Uh, mostly because a lot of times in cross sections, I always found I was having to project structures up. So things that were no longer there. Mm-hmm. And having the topography sometimes helps do that. Yeah, it does. Because, well, you know, sometimes structures and topography do follow each other. And it helps you know if you've done something terribly wrong, right? Yeah, definitely. If <laughs> if you have a, a dip slope somewhere that the topography says is 180 degrees off from what you have. <laughs> yeah, you know you're probably wrong. <laughs> yeah. That is true. Um, so, I mean, the good part about that is too, um, and you often see this in professional cross sections is that they will project the structures above those surfaces, um, which if you think about, I mean, if you think about, if anyone from Oklahoma thinks about this, (laughs) the place that we go to the most often on field trips is the Arbuckle Mountains, which was a huge anticline just like the whole there was one massive anticline and so you don't really see that but if you were to take a cross section and you do project that above the surface because it's all been eroded out right um and so it's it makes it clear when you do those kind of projections you're like oh that's what happened that yeah that part's always tricky where you see okay i've got bed uh, C, then bed B, then bed A on the left and on the right i have bed A, then bed B, then bed C Mm-hmm. you have to start drawing it to say, okay, was this an anticline or was this a syncline or... Exactly. Yeah. And how are they dipping? Was it an overturned anticline or syncline? And by making those projections, that's how you do it. But also, it's also the point of a cross-section, right? Because you're making these projections in the subsurface as well. And this is where there's a whole bunch of rules about, you know, you can't just your contacts shouldn't intersect in the subsurface. You should keep a constant thickness unless something tells you not to, like a fault or something like that. That's the one that always gets me, is, <laughs> you know, you can draw a cross-section to be whatever you want, just like you can interpret a seismic section. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And below the ground, a lot of times, yeah, you see people all of a sudden, oh, well, this layer got thicker here. It's like, well, why would that, physically, why would that happen with no evidence to speak yes. to that? Yes, and so people will do that, and and a lot of that is a testament to either you have plotted your apparent dips incorrectly, um, you've read the nomogram wrong, you did the math wrong, uh, or you took the dip wrong in the field, because, yeah, why would you have a section that's originally, because, you know, these are sedimentary structures we're talking about, originally sedimentary rocks are laid down horizontally, There's no real reason, unless you have like a thing that we'd call a growth fault or something, 
for it to be thicker on one side and thinner on the other, usually these beds are constant thickness. And so why would you do this in cross sections? And it happens every time. So there's a lot of stuff you need to think about practically. Like, why would this happen? Like, this is what my recipe said. This is how I made it. But something's not right. And this is kind of where the art comes into it a little bit, I think. This is where some cross sections become geophantasmograms. <laughs> Please tell me somebody wrote that on the top of one of your papers once. <laughs> uh, no, but it isn't a textbook. I do not remember the textbook, but somewhere it shows a uh, a very artist's conception geologic cross-section that has <laughs> lots of actual technical problems in it, and uh, they called it a geophantasmogram. I love that. I'm going to use that. Um, so, But this is where people start doing <laughs> what in the light... Uh, in to a geophysicist seems slightly absurd uh, of they're working on their cross section and they pull out a ball of string <laughs> and <laughs> start like measuring links along beds with string. And uh, I, it's one I, way to do it. It is one way to do it. I'm not even going to laugh. Like, I mean, that's yeah. So what's your point? <laughs> <laughs> like, what do you want me to pull out? Of course I'm going to pull out a piece of string. What's your problem? <laughs> because that's where you have to go back and you know say if you squished all these layers up here you have to do a thing you know you have to reconstruct or deconstruct really the cross section and go and say okay well you know these beds all have to wind up horizontal and uniform thickness so what have i done to make that happen and stuff like that yeah Right, so you use the string to measure thicknesses at different places and the length along these beds to basically create a backwards animation of the cross-section to its original boring flat layers. Right, which is ridiculously hard to do by hand, which I've had to do, yes. Um, and I think everyone should have to suffer through. Uh, it's a little easier by computer, but actually, I mean, some of these cross-sections are pretty complex, so... That turns out to get really hard, and I think this is where a lot of people get lazy, and they're like, ah, it's fine. I did everything right. I don't have to do that. Uh, you know, you probably should. Yeah, and definitely, at least for me, cross-sections were always a really light touch with a pencil thing, because when I was first doing the interpretation It'd take a couple of times. You'd start drawing something, and you'd say, no, that can't be, and you erase that. And you start doing it again, and, oh, well, this part looks right, but this doesn't seem right. And after a couple of attempts, you iterate towards what's probably the actual structure, but you have to have the BS meter turned on. Uh, right, exactly. Um, and I alluded to this earlier, and I just have to throw this out because I, it's one of the geology words I love, which is palinspastic. Um, which <laughs> the etymology of that is the ancient Greek, which means to draw again. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought yes. that was great. And uh, so just like you said, you got to turn that BS meter on and you have to palinspastically restore your cross-section, which is just undeforming it systematically, making sure you haven't, you know, added 200 feet of thickness on the right side that doesn't exist on the left side of this fault or something like that, or you've got a fault that's curved in a direction that doesn't make any sense with the tectonics at any time, stuff like that. I'm going to start using that with regards to code as well, because oh. it's totally true. When you, you, you first take a cut at 
okay, I'm going to write this function to do this. And then it works and the test pass, but you look at it and you say, oh, that's ugly. And then you go back and start refactoring it. So I'm going to start calling it palanspastic refactoring of my code at work. I love it. That's great. <laughs> I also like that, you know, you won't forget your geophysics roots in that way. Yeah. And I mean, this is <laughs> when, when in the field, you're doing some of this in your head in the field all the time. Uh, well, trying, trying to imagine. <laughs> right. Or you should be. Um, but I remember I was in a particularly complex section that had a lot of folding and faulting going on. And uh, the field instructor came up and said, well, let me see what you have on, on your map. And it's like, well, I'm, I don't really know about this yet. I'm still trying to figure out what's going on. He goes, let, let me see. Takes his finger and starts tracing this fault and goes, yes, 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 no. <laughs> and <laughs> it was, <laughs> it, it was a topography confusing the path of the fault kind of problem uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh that's beautiful <laughs> yes i believe we've all had those moments <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh that's fantastic um yeah so that's uh this is it's a hard concept to teach i think is all these things that you need to be taking into account when you're trying to get at you know, the underlying structure of any area. So anytime you look at a geologic map and then you want to say, okay, so what's this look like from the side? What's this cross-section through this certain area, this certain fold, this certain fault? What's this look like? Um, there's a lot of things you need to keep in mind as you do it. And as a student, and I mean, you know, I did this as a student too. You just want to get the answer, right, and move on. But... To truly understand it, you really need to keep all of this stuff in mind, including, you know, another way of saying turn on this BS meter. Um, it's including keeping multiple working hypotheses going on in your brain at the same time, because just like you were talking about, you don't want to get biased by the topography. So you don't want to, like, start looking for data to fit your interpretation. It's really important to make sure you're always thinking of multiple interpretations um one way that i find is easier to do that instead of saying keep in mind all these things is to not prove your point but try to disprove your point right i think that gives you an open more open mind when you're collecting data oh absolutely you know play your own devil's advocate right exactly because then you're you know at least you're on the mental side of trying to prove yourself wrong and Maybe that helps try to keep multiple hypotheses going on in your brain at the same time. And the other thing is just keeping doing it. There's a reason that everybody that makes the official USGS maps has been mapping for 30 years. Yes, <laughs> which is something that's so frustrating to me because I want to be super good at my job right away. And even at field camp, it's like my, you know, it's my fourth year to go out there in a teaching capacity, but I've been going out there as a TA is several years before that and you know these students are going out there and they're seeing it for one summer and that's it and it's hard to tell them you know well yeah there's still some parts that I don't understand and I've been coming out here the last eight years um it's hard for them to understand that I think but it's also really important to say that out loud you know like 
I've been coming out here eight years and I don't feel my map will ever be complete of some of these areas, <laughs> even though I work on it every year, you know, and that's an important thing to realize too. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. there are always going to be some areas that you just kind of draw the little dashed outline around <laughs> because <laughs> something special happened uh, there. It's so true. It's so true. And I, actually, as I, the more I go out there, the more fun I think it is. And it's really frustrating, especially to people who want a correct answer. That's why engineers hate geology so much, right? Um, you know, it's not an exact science. And <laughs> they get so mad because you're like, no. I need yes or no. Is this here? I'm like, well, there's evidence for that there, but there's also evidence against it. And that just drives people crazy. But man, there are so many eraser marks on those little boxes on my maps where every year I convince myself one way or the other and it totally changes. And I think that's the fun and reassuring part about geology. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, there are some structures out there that are uh, weakly magnetic as well. I remember, so your strike and dips would all look funky in this one area, and it turns out it's because that area is slightly magnetic, and so your compass was getting deflected. And Oh, it's so true. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, mm-hmm. I like that trick, too. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> but that is the, the sort of the summary of geologic cross-sections, which I think are one of the, the more fun things to try to make from your map. I, I agree. Um, I'll, I'll try to get a picture of this really good old geologic cross or geologic map that I have that I've I'm planning on using. I actually just got copies of it from uh, one of my colleagues, and she gave me this map. And on the actual geologic map, usually you see these cross section lines, and at the bottom is the cross section, but it's a tiny little cross section that's actually along the line of cross section on the actual map. Oh. It's amazing. <laughs> so, you know, the map is just a quadrangle map. Um, and then this tiny cross section that's like an inch to half an inch tall is printed right where it's taken. And I think that's just brilliant as a teaching tool. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So I'll, uh, I'll get you uh, those pictures so we can put those, you know, in the show notes or a link to them on there because it's the best teaching geologic map i've seen yeah yeah we'll definitely put that as a photo that goes with the show yeah but i think it's probably time to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show (laughs) yay stereo (laughs) cowbells are back yes (laughs) fun paper Paper friday Friday. (laughs) um man these medical journals are just killing it bmj is my favorite thing on earth (laughs) So this is from Shakespeare to Star Trek and beyond. <laughs> Embedded pun in the title. A Medline uh, Search for Literacy and Other Illusions in Biomedical Titles by mm. Goodman, who was not one of the Goodmans on the Goodman, a few Goodmen, Goodman, 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 and Goodman paper uh, from several episodes ago. Exactly. So obviously this is um, one of the Christmas issue BMJs. (laughs) And again, these beautiful abstracts. (laughs) And so Goodman set out to document biomedical paper titles containing literary and other illusions. And he does this basically just him thinking of funny puns and stuff. (laughs) Which is totally unscientific, which he basically 
says so. But there are a lot of allusions, especially to Shakespeare, Hans Christian Andersen, the Bible, and then also movie titles and more current allusions. And so he's looking at these through 1950 through 2004 and just saying, you know, what are these allusions and should you do this in the first place? Right. And one interesting thing I found about this is that some of these are timeless. So Shakespeare Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. versus other ones, you know, movie titles and that kind of thing. Not, not quite so much, which I guess isn't all that surprising, but you look at, if, if I make a reference to the movie Office Space, as I saw uh, <laughs> one of the former guests of Embedded was saying today, oh, look, you know, at, at the office, he said, look, this projector thing was made by Inatech, and he was just dying <laughs> laughing, and nobody ah, else, ah, they were just staring ah, at him. Ah, ah. Uh, see, this happens to me in my classroom when no one answers, and it's real quiet, and I go, Bueller, Bueller, and no one laughs anymore. And I thought, my God, all these kids are too young. They've never even seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Well, and you and I have made references and talk titles, actually, to uh, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Atomic Bomb. Yep. Mm -hmm. And that is also falling flat now, which Goodman would say in this paper is just further proof that we shouldn't be doing it anyway because we're not helping our audience know what we're talking about. (laughs) Um, I disagree with him where he thinks, though, that this doesn't help people read read papers because I think we've disproved that with the whole existence of Fun Paper Friday in the first place. (laughs) It's true. How many papers have we read (laughs) that we never would have read anything in that journal except for the fact that their title was absurd? Exactly. Um, So this this paper is really funny, number one, to think of the things that he thinks of because it's just him thinking of stuff and then searching it. Right. Like, that's what I got from this. Um, So basically, this is based on his level of knowledge of Shakespeare. Um, And the Bible one, actually, I thought was really interesting because he says it's more often cited not from uh, Americans. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. It said it was like 10% more by people in Europe. I thought that was interesting as well. Um, And so obviously, there's a lot of Shakespeare's. Uh, Hamlet, to be or not to be. There's a whole bunch of those. And all of these ones that he cites are really funny, right? Yeah, and I mean, this is a wealth of fun papers in itself. Uh, Journal of Surgical Oncology. A rose is a rose is a rose is a rose. But what exactly is gastric adenocarcinoma? (laughs) 1998, the Journal of Surgical Oncology. There you go. Yeah. Um, One that I liked quite a bit, which was another Shakespeare one. Is it ignobler for science to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous foolery? <laughs> and I, I, that one was great. I love a good pun. So apparently there's a test in some medical field called <laughs> NOD2, NOD2. <laughs> and yeah. my favorite one from the whole paper was to test or nod to test. What are the questions? <laughs> that's super great. Uh, there's also a Kurt Vonnegut short story that's a takeoff on that, too. Um, these telomeres. I don't know if you know anything about telomeres. I don't know why. I I don't feel like I know a lot about medical stuff, but I I feel like I know more than the average person because for some reason I'm really obsessed with it. Um <laughs> 
All's Well That Ends Well. That's the name of it. Telomeres, All's Well That Ends Well. And telomeres are little things on the ends of your chromosomes. Okay. (laughs) So there you go. (laughs) Nice. funny. (laughs) Um, I had to look that up to see if that was actually why it's funny and I remembered it correctly. So yes. (laughs) And And then there's ones about, you know, telomere and cancer. All's not well that doesn't end well, which is kind of terrible, but... (laughs) still yeah uh, well and there's lots of non-literary illusions too so there's back to the future i was um, really excited about how many back to the future ones 381 yeah um <laughs> let's see star trek a lot of them were the original series obviously um, close encounter to the third kind classic by steven spielberg in 1977 mm-hmm. uh Good and the super, Bad and the Ugly. Super surprised at how many Good, the Bad, and the Ugly references he found. <laughs> that is. Uh, yeah, that was uh, that was pretty interesting. One Also, a fistful of dollars, which my mother is obsessed with Clint Eastwood, so all of these are very familiar to me, and I love it. A fistful of T-cells. <laughs> <laughs> See, I would totally read that paper. Do I have anything to do with T-cells? Do I? No, I would totally read it. <laughs> and that inspires a figure. In the paper that is yes. a picture of Clint Eastwood from that movie. <laughs> Usurping my other favorite figures. Yeah, exactly. This is great. <laughs> well, one thing that was interesting is even when accounting for the increased number of papers that are getting published year on year on year, which we've talked about before, the number of titles that have these illusions per normalized paper production is linearly increasing. Mm-hmm. And it's independent of whether it's Shakespeare, Carol, Bible, Proverbs, Back to the Future, whatever. They're all increasing at pretty much the exact same rate. Uh, yeah, I think this is hysterical. Um, either we're obviously producing just funnier people in general, but whether it's real or not, people think that creating funny titles is going to get their paper read more. Um, <laughs> so one of my colleagues here, and I talked about my you know, dear friend Stacy several times on here, she did her master's thesis on the Alamo Breccia, which is a impact crater Breccia out in Nevada, and it's called the Alamo Formation. And she wanted to name her thesis, Remember the Alamo, and our advisor would not let her. She was so sad. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> so I did a, I actually did a talk on it for her at something, and I titled it Remember the Alamo. So there you go. And I'm going to be really interested to see. So a lot of these more pop culture references, the movies were made in the late 70s or early 80s. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm interested to see if in the next 20 years the references to those go off a cliff or not. Uh, yeah, and so I think um, some of them show sort of a downward trend, right, between sort of the older references to the more obscure, but I feel like stuff like Star Trek and Star Wars, that's never going to go away. <laughs> no, but maybe some of the some of the Eastwood Westerns might not be as popular. That is true. Back to the Future, that'll probably go away, but I think there's still a good number of you know, hardcore nerds, that that stuff's just not going to go away. What I'm really sad is that he did not look for any Lord of the Rings literary illusions. It's true. Uh, yeah, those, ha- those have to be there, right? I don't know. Maybe not, but... I mean, we might need a follow-up study here. I agree. Are you ready to publish in BMJ and... <laughs> 
this sounds like something that would be perfectly suited for machine learning. You feed a big database of mm -hmm. quotes and a big database of paper titles, and it picks out things that allude to each other. That is absolutely right. That's spectacular. That sounds like a master's thesis to me. Oh, what could you call it, though? <laughs> oh, there's a good one in there. I'm not even going to speculate. I'm going to have to wait. <laughs> you mean Johnny Five is Alive? That's another movie nobody will remember. Man, probably. I know. I made that joke the other day, too. And, uh, yeah, nothing. It fell on deaf ears. Uh, one that is clearly, I don't I wanted to point this out because I think it's funny, a, a jargony word, which is paradigm shift. And clearly he has it in for the term paradigm shift because he starts the paper <laughs> um, referencing another paper that talked about catchy titles. And he said, but catchy titles using literary illusions predate paradigm shift, first use 1980, by a good few years. <laughs> <laughs> because apparently this study has been done using the phrase paradigm shift before. Um, and so that's actually one of his, uh, one of the things in the graph is the use of the word paradigm shift. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, disturbingly, it is not going away. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know, you only get paradigm shifts through synergistically leveraging your did <laughs> <laughs> you get that from in tech <laughs> yeah <laughs> is it good for the company <laughs> oh you've already turned over to the corporate side i see <laughs> <laughs> so if yeah. you have a paper that has an illusion that you think is particularly great we would love to hear about it or your opinions on how elusive titles are affecting your paper reading habits. Uh, <laughs> Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? <laughs> well, you can email us those show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can send us a link on Twitter. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. You can also hang out in the software underground Slack chat room, the Don't Panic channel. And if you just feel like um, supporting us in other ways, you always can. Donate to our Patreon. Yeah, so head over there. Patreon just launched this feature where it lets you sort of live stream to patrons. Uh, so it, they're using it as a show your patrons how you do things. So I'm thinking that at some point I might uh, turn that on and show how a podcast setup actually happens, which is really an iPad, a microphone, and clearing all the papers off my desk. That means I have to put on pants. <laughs> Hey, we, you know, no, we, under the desk. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I get it. Okay. It's just all about the camera angle. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Good deal. <laughs> <laughs> and until next week, try to get that image out of your brain. Don't panic. <laughs> it's not an exact science. <laughs> <laughs> Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. Thank you.